On Sunday, thousands of peaceful protesters took to the streets across Cuba. Uh, in some smaller cities in Cuba, people started to demonstrate just because they were really fed up with a situation that seems unsustainable. That's our colleague Santiago Perez. He says that a year without tourism, a key source of revenue for Cuba, has dried up cash flow into the country. And that's caused a crisis for the government, which imports almost everything. So what we're seeing now, for example, is that people have to, you know, be in lines for hours to buy toothpaste, soap, shampoo, and basic goods like, you know, beans, cooking oil. There's no protein almost. No chicken, no meat, no baby formula, that type of thing. And what about fuel? Same thing. With the collapse of Venezuela, you're no longer able to get subsidized fuel and crude oil. That means there's no public transportation and there's not enough fuel to fire the power plants. You now have electricity blackouts. It's not only intolerable because of the summer heat, but you can't store food. And in recent weeks, COVID has hit the island hard. Cuba is essentially struggling with its first real wave of infection. And that means that the government is imposing curfews. But at the same time, what's really worrisome is that since you have no electricity, healthcare at hospitals can be quite rudimentary. You have Cubans abroad organizing shipments of, like, you know, basic medicines just to provide essential healthcare. The combination of these factors has driven people into the streets. You started seeing people going out in small towns, some communities that relied on tourism and now have no work, essentially, no source of income. And uh, people started seeing video clips on Facebook and WhatsApp and word spread. And essentially what we saw is a nationwide wave of protests. And on the lips of the protesters was one chant. You had thousands of people congregating in Havana and other cities demanding change and singing Patria y Vida. Patria y Vida is the name of a song. It means homeland and life. It has become an anthem for those seeking change on the island. And it's the product of a rising movement against Cuba's communist regime. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Wednesday, July 14th. Coming up on the show, Cuba's mass demonstrations and the dissident artists who wrote the protest anthem. This episode is brought to you by AARP. They have reskilling courses and career tools to help your income live as long as you do. The younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills.
To me, Cuba, it's a place like it's frozen time. Uh, you see, like, you know, these old U.S. cars from the 50s. There are no new buildings. It's not like, you know, a market economy or a capitalist society. What you see is a country essentially controlled by the state. You have a single-party rule, and you have full control of the economy, media, every single company, everything. Everything, including music and art. For decades, Cuban artists have been strictly controlled by the government. But about seven years ago, they got their first taste of change. The Cuban government had started opening the economy up in some small ways. And at the same time, the Obama administration eased restrictions on Americans traveling to or doing trade with Cuba. Together, these changes ushered in a new economic era for the country. It was like the Havana Spring. You had investors coming to town, art collectors, curators, tourism boom. And even artists who fled Cuba, they decided to come back. And that meant an increase in economic activity. The Cuban government at the same time was opening the economy in a very modest way. You started to see small businesses opening up, small restaurants, bed and breakfasts. What did that time mean for communications, like cell phones and the internet and social media? About three years ago, finally, Cubans were able to communicate using social media and having internet connections on their phones. That was just three years ago. Just imagine. So it was like a revolution in a sense. And that essentially created independent channels of communication. While opening up came with economic benefits, it also created room for people like artists and dissidents to connect with each other. People were able to exchange information. They were able to spread the word about events, about news. They were able to dispute the propaganda of a government that has been in power for more than six decades. For the first time, there was a different narrative. So what the Havana Spring meant for artists was an incredible new beginning. But this new beginning for artists didn't sit well with Cuba's communist government. Imagine during those years, I mean, Havana was booming. Reggaeton was taking off. The government wasn't really comfortable with reggaeton in particular because of the narrative. It was very explicit and it was very materialistic. It was essentially against the values, the Marxist and revolutionary values of the establishment. More importantly, I mean, they were having huge concerts. That means thousands of young Cubans congregating in an independent way. So it was a bit dangerous for a government that wants to control everything. So that was a problem. In 2018, the Cuban government decided to clamp down on artistic expression. A new president, Miguel Diaz-Canel, had just taken office. And the first thing he did was sign a law called Decree 349. That decree gave the Ministry of Culture the power to censor any artist from performing in public or private 
So Cuban artists were once again being silenced. Some artists had their license taken. That meant that these guys couldn't work. Some others, like Luis Manuel Otero, who's an amazing artist and very creative, that guy has been arrested more than 75 times. And this time, some artists decided to fight back. What happened was that the entire art movement essentially started to fight for civil rights. That included rap artists, painters, performance guys. It was a broad reaction, essentially, to defend freedom of expression and freedom of artistic expression. One of the most visible groups of dissident artists from this period was the San Isidro movement. It's named after one of Havana's poorest neighborhoods, which is also predominantly Black. This movement is essentially made up of Black artists. You have Luis Manuel Otero, a very provocative performance artist. Then you have, like, hip-hop and rap singers like Michael Osorgo and his longtime MC partner and childhood friend, El Funky. These guys essentially leaped on the edge. In a way, it's like, you know, a clandestine world, and you have police chasing them all the time. So what they did was to set up clandestine studios and just show in their songs how difficult life in Cuba is these days, especially for the Black community. The San Isidro movement would organize small, underground events in Old Havana. But the government kept cracking down on them. So, in November 2020, dozens of artists, many of them members of the group, organized a peaceful protest in front of the Ministry of Culture. They just wanted freedom of expression. They wanted basic civil rights. And this was unprecedented in Cuba. Remember that there are no protests in Cuba. There are no political parties other than the Communist Party. That has been the case for the past six decades. How did the government react to this protest? Well, at first the government seemed to be receptive. They met with these um, young artists. But then things went, went back to normal. And uh, President Diaz-Canel began, like, undermining the credibility of these guys by saying that they were, like, you know, on the payroll of the U.S. government, that this was a reality show, that they were not really artists. Since then, the confrontation has only escalated. A couple of months after that first protest at the Ministry of Culture, the artists of the San Isidro movement would make their biggest resistance move yet. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever, and you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more.
One night in February, two members of the San Isidro movement, a rapper named Michael Castillo and the visual artist Luis Manuel Utero, snuck out of their homes, past the police who often followed them around, and met up in a dilapidated apartment in Old Havana. And what they did was to essentially do a, a clandestine video recording. The musicians sent the recording to a producer in Miami who put the song on YouTube and released it to the world. The song is called Patria y Vida, which means fatherland and life. It questions the old slogan of the Cuban Revolution, which is Patria o Muerte, or fatherland or death. And what happened after Patria y Vida was released? It went viral. It was a massive hit. This song resonated with many Cubans who'd been struggling with government repression, food and power shortages, and now surging COVID cases. The lyrics speak about a lack of freedom of expression and call out violence and repression by a police state. It mounts an appeal to Cuba's youth for political change. When the protests erupted this past weekend, it was Patria y Vida that many people were chanting. Now what we have is an anthem of resistance and dissidence. It's not the first time that we see art and music in particular becoming a vehicle of change. We've seen that in South Africa, uh, in South America during the 70s with military governments. So uh, this might well be one of the key tools for change. So at these protests on Sunday, what demands did the protesters have? They want basic civil rights, freedom of expression, and essentially a call for freedom. Imagine, no public transport, no electricity, no food, no basic goods, no toothpaste, no no toilet paper. They just fed up. This isn't only about economic stagnation. The situation is just unbearable. There was also a lot of anger, and we saw confrontations with security forces. Police motorbikes were destroyed. Cars were overturned. How has the government responded since the protests? Well, Monday was quite a quite a difficult day for Cubans because uh, the government erected checkpoints. Police was everywhere. Security forces monitoring pedestrian activity. They also cut internet and phone service for almost two days. So they were not able to communicate to each other. It was impossible to come up with an accurate estimate on how many people were arrested, how many injured, even if, you know, if, we, if there were any victims. We, we still don't know. The Cuban government blames the unrest on U.S. sanctions, which it says have created the shortages. It has also cracked down on the song, Patria y Vida, calling it counter-revolutionary propaganda. You cannot play that song in Cuba. You cannot listen to that song in Cuba. Or you're subject to fines 
if you listen to it. Since the song came out, several of the artists who contributed to it have been arrested. One is being held in a maximum security prison. Another is under house arrest. A third was arrested at the protests on Sunday. But the song is still playing across Cuba as the protests continue. Sometimes art can be an incredible vehicle to change a society. Art can be a vehicle to show that people is unhappy, and it can also be a catalyst for collective action. And that's what we are seeing now. And uh, this is totally new, new in the sense that you have a new generation now pushing for change. What does this mean for the regime? Can the regime survive? Well, this regime has been quite resilient over the years. During the Cold War, after Fidel Castro passed away, after Raul Castro retired, it's pretty clear that President Díaz-Canel is far from charismatic. He's seen as a bureaucrat. He lacks the credibility of the former revolutionary leaders. But on the other hand, these guys are, have a very sophisticated mechanism of control. And what we need to see now is whether these demonstrators and people in general are determined or not to keep on pushing for change. So the outlook at this stage is not clear, but I think conditions are quite challenging for the current regime. It'll be increasingly difficult for the government to keep confronting these movements. And these groups like the Movimiento San Isidro, they won't give up. They won't give up. They are really determined to push for change. That's all for today, Wednesday, July 14th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Additional reporting from Jose de Cordoba and Anthony Harrop. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.